0: Hello, Magic fans, and welcome. Today, we're going to live it up a little with all the grit and glamour of Magic's newest set, Streets of Nuka Penna. I'm Becca Scott.
1: And I'm Joe Johnson.
0: And today, we're going to be digging into everything from high society flings to
1: Nuka Penna's seedy underbelly, all while trying to figure out which of the five crime families we're going to throw our lot in with. (laughs) Yeah, or or what about Stanzo brand fedoras? All right, well, I mean, that seems fine. What, What about Thousand Plastic Meatballs? Wow. You know what I saw once I thought was cute? Tommy guns. All right, all right, all right, so. 50 black slick back hair wigs. Wait. 50 black slick back hair wigs. 50 black slick back hair wigs.
0: So, (laughs) just a thought, purely just a little suggestion, of course. Maybe. Hey, who took my cigars?
2: Who took my cigars?
1: Sure, it's fine. I mean, that's just business.
2: You ready to do this? Yeah, let's go. (laughs)
0: Hello and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Anthony, pre-release
1: underperformer Maddox. Oh, do you have to bring that up? You had a rough go this time, it It sounds like. It didn't go great, but you know, pre-release is all about having a good time, not winning, right? It's about, I feel like, learning. I feel like if you come away with new information about the set, that's the best you can ask for. Uh-huh, sure. I learned, I used to be a lot better at Limited than I am right now. I mean, not playing for a while, will do that to you. Turns out.
0: Anthony, this is our Streets of New Capanna and New Capanna Commander Community Set Review episode, which means, as always, we are joined by friend of the show, Parker Lamascus. Hey, Parker. Hey, I have good news, Anthony. I did not attend a pre-release at all, so you're not coming in last. That counts for something. Uh, I don't
1: know. I don't know if that counts.
0: (laughs) I also missed pre-release this time around. It was a big bummer for me because uh, I like I like pre-releases. It's one of my favorite ways to play Magic, but I. Incidentally, scheduled a trip for pre-release weekend, which would be very sad. You gotta
1: put those things on your calendar ahead of time. Made me so sad, but uh, I also didn't get to pre-release, so big bummer. Well, I was delighted that they switched back uh, the digital release and the paper release, so pre-release actually felt like a pre-release again. It wasn't just showing up and everybody else was already like totally burnt out on the set because they have been drafting on Arena for 48 hours straight. That's the feeling I want. That's what I'm thirsty
0: for. I need that pre-release vibe. Well, let's just hope they stick with it. I really hope they stick with it. Regular listeners will know the uh, the shtick by now, but uh, Parker, for those that don't, do you want to run down how our survey works and what the structure of this episode is going to be? Sure. So for every set, we at Lucky Paper put out a survey, and we ask Cube curators who respond two questions. What cards are they testing, and how excited are they for those cards? And we ask them on a scale of one to three, a three being whatever that cube curator defines as a staple for years to come. And that can be a staple on the metric of power or just the right power level or aesthetics or play pattern or the art, or we even have some curators who only consider alliterative card names. So whatever your restriction is, however you define staple, a three ranked card is what you think a staple is. And then of course, a one is... A card you're not very optimistic about and a two is somewhere in between and we have a spectrum so we're going to discuss the top tested cards the most popular cards from these two sets and compare them to our past results and our expectations great explanation parker this is why i have you do it because you're so good at it thanks i so naturally I've been to practicing you. without further ado let's dive in we're going to start with new company commander I got to say, I feel like something has changed in the design of Commander sets because this set has more cards that I and other cube designers seem interested in than past Commander sets. I'm not sure what the difference is exactly. Do either of you have a like sense of what changed?
1: I think they have made a pretty deliberate change in the way that Commander products are designed. I think they used to be sort of a little bit... Maybe ad hoc is a little bit too uh, strong of a term, but it was sort of like, you know, somebody or one or two people would go design the deck. Now there's actually a, a, a team that is like the casual play design team that is responsible for designing the commander decks as well as a lot of other products. I'm not 100% sure this was actually one that was designed under that team, um, but generally it just seems like they're, they're putting a lot more focus and emphasis into casual play which sounds weird like that's always been a huge part of of magic but i think they are changing and being a little bit more deliberate about that
0: whatever it is i'm excited about it because there were more cards that were interesting to me and i just like getting more cards that are in the in the realm of things i can consider for my own cube environment so i'm excited about whatever that change was all right so we try and draw the line somewhere reasonable in terms of how many we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the top five cards from New Capenna Commander. There's a decent difference of about 5% between the sixth and fifth card, so it seems like a good place to draw the line. And the first card we're going to talk about is Grand Crescendo. This is X, white, white for an instant. Create X, one, one, green and white citizen creature tokens. Creatures you control gain indestructible until end of turn. Being tested by 19.4% of our respondents. A different take on a Secure the Waste style card. Is the Indestructibility worth another white mana?
1: I think that's really going to depend on the context. I mean, so we're, we're talking about cards that are from a commander set. So even though we're saying there's maybe some change in the design ethos and design process, so a lot of these do feel a lot more flexible in terms of what kind of environments they fit in. But I do still think that this is really going to shine a lot in multiplayer formats because indestructibility matters a lot when wraths matter a lot, because that is sort of a, a something that emerges from multiplayer play. So in multiplayer environments, I would value that a lot. Outside of that, it's going to vary a lot depending on just what the format looks like. But obviously, you know, you can get in situations where just you get into a combat and your opponent expects to make a lot of trades and then you end up gaining a ton of value with this. So I, I think it's interesting. It's interesting just to have a, another variation on this type of effect.
0: Yeah, and you can just cast it for X equals zero. So for white, white, just give your team indestructible. Yeah, which that's a great point. I don't, I mean, heroic intervention, I guess, is another two mana example that gives your team indestructible. Am I right about that? Or yeah, just one creature. indestructible and hexproof. So there's a pretty effective rate for that side of the card. And you kind of get to free roll or, you know, I guess it's not a free roll because you are paying more mana for this than a typical secure the waste effect. But you get to play that combat trick or whatever
1: you want to call it kind of
0: at a low cost of inclusion, so... I see why people are interested in this card.
1: It's also, I think, makes sense because it is a modal spell in that sense, where you get two potentially pretty different effects. But the one effect is sort of a go wide, make a bunch of tokens. And the kinds of decks that really need that protection effect are potentially also the decks that are trying to go wide and commit to the board. So I think that package makes a lot of sense.
0: I'll say for me, even if I was interested in the giving your team indestructible, which I'm not particularly, even if I was, though it'd take a lot to get me to run this given the unique token it doesn't use an existing token for magic it's this new green white citizen creature token which is a big hurdle for me at least i try to minimize the trivial additional tokens that are the
1: exact same stat line as other tokens the token creep has entered the room
0: is there anything in your list that cares about specifically green and white or specifically creature type citizen Uh, i'm still on heirloom blade yeah, but do I don't it. think I have any other citizens in my cube, so I don't think that would ever come up there. Basically, citizens there. I don't think I have anything else that cares about those things, but I don't know. It's always it's always hard to say. Yeah, I tend to just like use a 1-1 one, one white human and call it a day. Heresy. I know.
1: Pure, pure heresy. I know. Next up in uh, the New Capenna Commander set is Into Deep. It's blue-blue for an enchantment, an aura. It has split-second... And enchant creature, planeswalker, or clue, enchanted permanent is a colorless clue artifact, so you can pay to sacrifice it and draw a card. So this is kind of an inter- interesting variation on a pacifism effect, where you're most likely going to put this on your opponent's creature. It's going to turn into a clue, and it has this funny rules text where it allows you to enchant clues because obviously they don't want it to fall off when it turns the creature into a clue.
0: Oh, I was just about to ask why I had enchant clue. <laughs> I was like, why would you turn a clue into another clue? But yeah,
1: we've seen this before on uh, in Theros Beyond Death. It was a enchant creature turn it into an enchantment and and it had that same weird effect where it's like oh i can just cast this in a way that is completely meaningless but it needs to be there for the rules to work that is
0: kind of clunky but it does make sense this is most comparable to fateful absence i think which is that white removal spell that destroys something and they get a clue maybe it exiles i don't remember but i think that what's interesting about this to me is that this is not really a thing we see in blue very often this being a blue spell jumped out at me like basically turning something into a clue i mean i i get the flavor of it the transmogrification of one matter into another is a very blue thing but basically two mana almost hard removal it's not really a blue thing so I, i think for the people that are interested in this it's probably the novelty of being able to run removal spells in your mono blue deck or your blue green deck or whatever
1: Yeah. The downside, I think, is pretty meaningful. So it is being tested by 20% of the people that responded specifically to the Commander Set survey. So not a huge number. The ranking is also 1.8, which is above average still, or above the middle, I should say, but a little bit lower than the rest of the cards. So I think that people are interested in it because potentially of that uniqueness, that novelty, but are a little bit skeptical if it's going to remain in their environments for a long time.
0: You compared it to Fateful Absence, but I think Declaration in Stone is maybe a better Comparison, because they're both sorcery yeah, that's a great speed. Point. I think another aspect of this card that's really quite exciting is the flavor integration. And I don't know, I love the idea of an opponent's creature, like, getting so involved, so so essentially blue, so focused on the mind that they, be, they go in too deep and, and become a part of the mystery. I think that's pretty neat. And I also think split second, specifically in blue is going to have a lot of additional utility for cubes that support like Drago control matchups because it can't be countered essentially. And so when you're in the mirror match, you can have a guaranteed way to deal with your opponent's Teferi or your opponent's um, other Teferi, anything (laughs) that you need, right? All the Teferis. Yeah. Okay, our next card is Caldea Guardian. It's three and a green for a 4-3 human soldier. It has the abilities, whenever Caldea Guardian or another creature you control with mana value four or greater dies, create two 1-1 green and white citizen creature tokens. And it also has the ability Blitz for two and a green. If you cast the spell for its bliss costs, it gains haste. And when this creature dies, draw a card, sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. I am regretting reading that reminder text but <laughs> Blitz is still a mouthful. It is really a mouthful. I don't know. It's it's another variation on a green mid range attacker that provides resiliency to removal and also some modality. I actually think the more appealing mode is the two and a green blitz cost because you cash it in for four damage immediately and two one ones for three mana. Oh, and a card. I totally forgot about the card. That that seems like a pretty good package deal where your value is coming in several different currencies that can be useful at many times during a game. Yeah, I was going to ask which mode seemed better, and the blitz mode seemed better to me too. I'm wondering how many situations, even when you have access to four mana, being able to blitz it out and then do something else with your other mana is going to be better. And in a deck with one mana ramp, Doing this on turn two, where you get to cantrip, make two one ones and presumably bash for four unless they played a blocker in their first turn. I don't know. It seems like it's quite potent.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to change a lot depending on what kind of environment we're talking about, because I agree that in a lot of environments where it's just, you know, it's about creatures, it's about getting on the board and getting your opponent dead. That makes a lot of sense. And that seems like a a high value play and an exciting play, too, because you get, you know, a bunch of tokens, you get to draw a card, although... By doing that, you're giving up the ability of having this sticking in play and then other things dying and sort of creating this this sort of engine. Uh, So I think there are going to be environments where this functions more as like maybe not quite a combo piece or even potentially a combo piece, but giving you the sort of value engine of turning a lot of your other cards into tokens. Uh, It kind of reminds me of Annex Hardened in the Forge in that sense.
0: I already know that I am going to forget to draw the card with Blitz because oh, so much absolutely. other stuff is happening on this card. Like, if I was playing this, I'd be like, great, I get my two tokens, get in for four, and return sacrifice. I'm just going to forget to draw that card. It's like uh, I used to have a cycling commander deck, mm-hmm, yep. and I would have so many things that triggered on cycling that I would forget to draw the card from cycling. I'd be yeah. like, all right, cycle this. All this stuff happens, then I'd be like, oh, right, and I also get to
1: draw a card. How, how many times have you cycled Cross and Tusker, gotten your land with a smile on your face, and then been like, did I draw my card?
0: <laughs> yeah. I forgot to mention Caldea Guardian is being tested by 20.9% of respondents to this survey with an average rating of two. It is worth noting that we always get substantially fewer respondents to the commander surveys compared to the regular sets for a variety of reasons. So I, I don't know if these percentages are directly comparable to the percentages in the other survey because people that went out of their way to fill this one out more likely to want to test the cards. I don't know. But uh, that is something to note, is that the uh, definitely different respondent pool between the two surveys. All right, your number two most popular cube card from nuke Panda Commander is Currency Converter. This is an artifact for one generic mana. Whenever you discard a card, you may exile that card from your graveyard. It has an activated ability, pay two and tap it to draw a card, then discard a card, and another activated ability to tap... Put a card Exile with currency converter into your graveyard. If it's a land card, make a treasure token. If it's a non-land card, make a 2-2 black rogue creature token. The mana value to text ratio on this card is uh, is quite high. A lot of text for the mana, which is always something <laughs> that, that catches my
1: eye. Is that is that a good thing? You're like, wow, this card must be great. It does so much stuff.
0: Well, I mean, this is similar to the, the comment I had about Sticky Fingers on our Cubic Editions episode, where it's like, it's only one mana. and Look at all the stuff it does. I think oftentimes those cards tend to overperform
1: because it's so little cost to, to do the thing. Yeah, I think that's true. It's it's kind of a cool little card. It's it's a little bit it reminds me of Bag of Holding is the first thing that comes to mind just because Anthony,
0: everything reminds you of Bag of Holding.
1: That's not true. That's the fourth time this week you said something <laughs> reminded you of Bag of Holding. That might be true. But, you know, it's a small artifact. It gives you some looting ability. What's interesting is that Bag of Holding is like a one-time effect. So I think that that is a little bit hard to make work in a lot of contexts where you, you have to make a big investment and in count the game going long to, to get that value back. Whereas this kind of lets you incrementally convert that value into something else, which... I think, honestly, it's probably just going to have better play patterns. It does have the burden of more token creep, and the ceiling is maybe a little bit less high. But overall, I think it's a cool card. I don't know if it justifies it for a lot of context like I, I also see the the wordiness as a downside to be honest a lot of cases Oh, for sure from a design perspective. I want to uh, you know make sure all the words that are on the cards that I put in my cubes are as meaningful and valuable as possible and there's going to be a lot of context where some of those abilities are just not going to be super relevant
0: it's also worth noting a lot of players just don't know commander set cards if they don't end up seeing a lot of play in the commander of the format or being
1: popular yeah, that's true. elsewhere you can definitely so, afford to put more complexity into your cube in cards that people are very familiar with yeah but I can't tell How many times someone's been like,
0: "Pest infestation is a
1: card," and I'm like,
0: "Yes, it is a card. Believe it or not, I don't
1: have to name any targets either."
0: I think the ceiling on
1: this is way higher than the ceiling on Bag of Holding. What's the most cards you've drawn with Bag of Holding? Because that's important.
0: The important thing to be here is that uh, if you're in a deck where you are never planning to actually activate the looting ability on this thing, but you're discarding cards otherwise. Oh, sure. Then I think the ceiling on this is really, really high. Like if you're playing a a discard focused deck and you have one mana for basically an artifact that can either spit out two twos or spit out treasure for the rest of the game if you're continually looting through your deck.
1: I think that's really,
0: really powerful.
1: Yeah, you're right. I totally didn't think about that.
0: Absent that, I I agree. It's, I think, a very slow value card if your only way or one of your only ways of discarding is to activate that ability. It competes with a lot of other cards that are similarly slow value engines, and you can choose whichever one fits with your cube design goals. But I do think in some environments, this will be a very powerful card if discard is a supported theme.
1: Right. It's also relevant the exile clause is a May, unlike Bag of Holding, which every card you discard has to be exiled under the bag of holding. Here you get to choose, which I think is kind of nice in two ways. One, obviously, gives you a little bit more flexibility. If you have something that you do you know, want a flashback from the graveyard or something, you can do that. Additionally, it means if you miss your trigger and forget, like that's easier to resolve those sort of rules confusion because you missed it. Just keep going with the game. I have two
0: comments here. One is that this is a combo with Urza Saga, so that might increase its appeal. Finally, a reason people. to play
1: Urza Saga. I
0: know, right? And My second comment is, I think a lot of the text on this card is easily shortcutted or shortcut, I guess. Like after the first few times you activate it, you're going to learn that, oh, I tap it and then based on the type of the card, which is a pretty obvious and intuitive attribute to care about, based on that type, I do one of two things and those things never change. And I think that's like a lot less burdensome than a lot of cards with this much text. I mean, contrast this to Retrofit or Foundry as another Urza Saga target, right? Yep. Similar amount of text on that card. That one is a little maybe, well, I don't know. That one, all the abilities are kind of the same thing, mm-hmm. but, you know, just kind of incrementing up, which I think is also a way to shortcut it. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's a hugely complicated card. I was just commenting on how many how much rule text it has
1: for one little generic mana, you know? Sure. Right. And it is being tested by almost 33% of the respondents with an average rating of 2.2. So a, a big step up in terms of popularity of this card.
0: Yeah, 12% more popular than Kaldaya uh, Guardian. So really quite up there. We do have a hot take about this card from Trainmaster Master GT.
2: One card I am excited for actually comes from the new Copenna Commander decks, and that is Currency Converter. I think this card is a really interesting discard payoff that can effectively convert things you're discarding into actual usable resources, such as 2-2 rogue tokens or treasures. If you have any efficient ways to discard cards, such as Hieroglyphic Illuminations, Voldaren Epicure, or even just a Faithful Suiting, you can really start pumping out a lot of value really early into the game. My only real reservation with this card is that it is very inefficient if you're activating its built-in looting ability. Two mana is kind of a lot to just loot, and although that'll be okay in slower environments, that cost can really add up in faster cubes where you're going to be ending the game sooner. However, I think the ceiling when you're just discarding cards through other methods and getting to focus with your converter on just making tokens, getting to make one or two rogue tokens can put you so far ahead that it's just not even funny. For a one-drop, this card seems great. I think as we get more efficient discard effects in the future, this card is going to become much, much better. But I think it's already playable in some environments. Thank you. Our last,
1: the number one card, according to our cube designers, in Streets of New Capanna Commander. Or is it just New Capanna Commander? I think it's just New Campana Commander. The card is Lethal Scheme. Uh, so this is being tested by 46% of the people that responded. So quite a big chunk. A lot of people are interested in this card with a rating of 2.4 so pretty pretty close up there i dare say that a lot of people only filled out this survey so they could say they were going to be playing this card yep that <laughs> sounds about right it's an instant for two black blacks a total of four it has convoke so you can tap your creatures to help you cast this instead of tapping your lands destroy target creature or planeswalker and each creature you convoked lethal scheme with connives which means you draw a card discard a card if you discard a nine non-land you can put a one one counter on those creatures what do you guys think about this card
0: I, yeah, I, I like it. I just don't have a reason to, like, love it. I don't know. I'm I'm not testing it, and I, I don't have a good reason on power level. Not Spark and Joy. I, I still am very excited about this card for, for different reasons than normally I get excited about cards. Uh, you know, it's four mana. I say in big air quotes because you will be able to convoke it out sometimes, or pr- probably most of the time, you'll be able to convoke at least one creature into it, maybe. It's... Not anywhere near as flexible as the cards I usually get really excited about for my cube. I love flexible cards. I love cards every single deck will play in that color that allow you as a drafter to give you lots of options in the pack for what card slots into your deck. This is not a card that a creature-like control deck is interested in, I don't think. At least not in my environment. Definitely. Four mana is a lot of mana to pay for removal in my environment. And if you don't have ways to get value off that conniving and convoking, then it's below rate substantially enough that I can't imagine ever making the main deck of a control deck which it would be the only really really the only removal spell in my entire cube that I would classify as as not interesting to control decks but that's also what I really like about it actually because I think there is enough of a draw here in a creature based black deck be that aggressive be that mid-range there's enough potential value here to uh, really be worth taking over some other more generic removal I mean, the ceiling of this card is ridiculously high. It's, it's just
1: insane. You it's could theoretically zero mana loot four times and add four power to the board as the ceiling, right? That is the ceiling, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and that's really, really strong.
0: I think on power level, this card is probably going to be middling in my environment. In a lot of contexts, the deck that can afford to convoke this for two or three or four would probably much rather, on power level, just have a doom blade and then be able to attack with those two or three or four creatures. Right if they're removing the only creature that is preventing them from having good attacks. However, in a board stall or in a situation where uh, you're not just strictly racing, but you're trying to compete on board presence, I do think it will have an edge over those other kinds of cards. I just am really interested in all the stuff this card does and the fact that it really does motivate you to be in a specific kind of deck to get the most out of it. I haven't had a chance to cast it yet, but I'm optimistic that it's going to be worthwhile in my cube environment. You know Interesting. what? Interesting. The fact, the, the power of this card is being maximized in a board stall means that it's most powerful in precisely my least favorite game states of magic. And and the thing it does is get you out of that game state. So actually, you know, having listened to this conversation and looked at the art long enough to convince the art myself is so that good. I like it. The art's yeah. so good. Okay. I'm on it. You, I'm, wow. I'm on the lethal scheme train.
1: It's interesting. I think that my main cube, regular cube, is actually like exactly the kind of space where this would really shine because even the slower, more controlling decks are still very much focused on creatures and combat. So you might be sitting back, you want your blockers, and then you get to make a cool block. Maybe you even pump your creature in response to yeah. to, to your attacks. Right, and it's a so combat you get your, trick too. Like, it's just a yeah, combat trick. Yeah, you get to eat something, kill something with a lethal, lethal scheme. But I think it's actually just really overpowered I there, so, so I Broken. don't think I'm going to try it there. But I, I do appreciate that it has that modality of, like, yeah, to, turning into a combat trick. There's just so many ways that this can play out in different ways. And I love cards that just have a lot of variability in how you use them in a lot of decision space.
0: As a combat trick, it's honestly really just cracked. Like, if you get into a situation where you get to use this as a combat trick and remove their best attacker and turn your block from a trade into you just eating their creature and also loot some number of times and make your board bigger, like, for potentially a no mana or just a little bit of mana, it's got a really, really ridiculously high ceiling. The other thing I'll say is, I, I mean, I still think that, uh, you know, again, on power level, oftentimes you're just going to want a Doom Blade effect if you're the aggressor. I do think that, uh, you know, the fact that you can obviously tap creatures that are summoning sick, so you play, play out this creature you were never going to get to attack with anyway, you know, basically, like, one mana creatures are, like, free with this. They... Reduce this spell's cost by as much as they cost you to cast them, so you can cast two one-mana creatures and then play this for two mana and co- and convoke with those two creatures. And it's like you still spent the four mana for the spell, but you got these two one ones, which are now two twos out of it. I think it's gonna be a lot of interesting sequencing opportunities with this card. That uh, there's a chance it ends up being narrow enough that it ends up just riding sideboards in my cube, in which case it will probably get cut. The other way I see it getting cut is just if the blowouts are way too blowouty, because we know I don't love blowouts, and I think the blowouts could be pretty high with this card.
1: Yeah, it's fair. It sounds like not your kind of magic, if I'm honest. It gets you out of board
0: stalls, though. That's the thing. I I agree Mm -hmm. with Parker about uh, any card that gets you out of board stalls is very appealing to me.
2: I'm a really big fan of the card lethal scheme from the new Cabana Commander decks. This card seems really powerful for mid-range decks. It's a removal spell that can be free, provides card selection, can buff relevant creatures, and even destroys Planeswalkers. I know some people disagree with me on this, but I think it's important to have some amount of targeted Planeswalk removal in a cube. Cards like Elspeth, Sun's Champion and Garrett Cursed Huntsman throw up a wall of tokens. This makes it extremely hard to hit them with creatures, and sometimes allows them to just stay on the battlefield and win the game with no interaction whatsoever. In either case, I think Lethal Scheme is great because, hey, it's removal, it's card selection, it's a team buff, it can be free. Yeah, that's just really good. Sorry. That's it for New Campana
0: Commander. I'm excited about some of these cards, and uh, it seems like other cube designers are as well.
1: Uh, so we just talked about the the couple that are tested by the most people, but obviously that these are not the best cube cards. These are just the the ones that are most appealing to more of the community. Uh, so to check out all the rest, uh, go to the website and find the full article that's going to list and lay out and give you a nice graphic of how popular these cards are, what their rating is, and how contentious those ratings are.
0: And notably, we're recording a little in advance of the survey closing, so... If you see some of the numbers change slightly, it's because we've gotten additional entries after our recording session. And if you think these are wrong and these are not the best cube cards, then uh, you didn't fill out the survey, then it's your fault. You should have filled out the survey and then your voice would have been heard. Your vote would have been cast. All right, on to the main event, Streets of New Capenna. Before we dive into individual card discussions, Parker, do you... Have any thoughts on the overall trend of this set compared to past sets? Yeah, I always like to talk a little bit about these comparative descriptors at the beginning. I don't know if y'all have seen the great motion picture "No Country for Old Men" by the Coen Brothers. Indeed. Yeah, so there's this great line in it. I actually don't like the movie, but there's there's a line <laughs> I, just I call really it great. <laughs> I know that's my uh, facetious way of saying movie is the great motion picture. Um, okay. Yeah. The point is, there's this line where two FBI agents are talking or, or police off somebody, somebody who's lawful. And one says to the other, this man is dangerous. And the other replies, compared to what? The bubonic plague? And that line just sticks with me because it reminds me that the essence of quantitative thinking is comparison. And it doesn't do us any good to like talk about these cards in a vacuum. It's always the important thing is compared to what. So that's that's why I like to do these statistics. The median respondent to our Streets of New Capenna survey is testing nine cards from this set, the main set, not Commander. And that median respondent gave three cards a strong rating above 2.5. So a third of their tests on at the median are tests that they think are very strong, a a high likelihood to be a staple for years to come, however they define that term. So when we compare this to other sets for which we've conducted surveys, this is pretty close to Crimson Vow or Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. These are not sets that are known for their enthusiasm among cube curators. People found that these sets did not contain as many cards or as exciting of cards as some alternatives. So yeah, I I don't wanna, you know, undermine our enterprise here, but yeah, most respondents to this sets survey, trashed, garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no. But <laughs> I I think I would just say that people are less excited about this set than they have been for some in the recent past. I do think a lot of that comes down to the gold theme. We have a hot take to that effect.
2: I think a lot of the best cards in Streets of New Cabana are getting snubbed for cube inclusion because they are three colors. There are so many great cards in the set, such as Rafine, Scheming Seer, Endless Detour, Most of the Charms, Voidrend, Rocco, and possibly even Maestro's Ascendancy, which would all be seeing some level of play if they were less color intensive, but probably won't end up in the majority of cubes for having that third color. I think this is partially due to the fact that these are mostly removal spells and utility cards as opposed to cool build-arounds. Most of the commonly played three-color cards are either Planeswalkers or cool build-arounds. For example, you might see the cool build-around Kess Dissident Mage or the Planeswalker Nickel Bullus Dragon God in a cube, but you're unlikely to see a utility card like Krosus's Charm. Now this is at least partially due to the fact that before Streets of the New Capenna mostly utility three-color cards tended to be not really as good as their monocolor or two-color counterparts, but it's also just because when people are going to be committing to a third color, they want to be doing it for something cool and splashy. However, I think this leads to an unfortunate side effect. In my experience, a lot of the three-color build-arounds tend to end up warming a sideboard, either because they're picked too late in the draft to be able to be effectively built around, or because it's just hard to build around them in the first place. Even if one has the mana base to effectively cast a cast distant Mage, they might not want to simply because it requires them to have a bunch of instants and sorceries to be good. The thing is, I think these utility cards tend to be more splashable than the build-around cards we traditionally see included in the three-color section. This paradigm I dub the Mantis Rider effect. Mantis Rider costs a red, a blue, and a white for a 3-3 creature with Vigilance, Haste, and Flying. Mantis Rider almost always ends up seeing play in my cube. Boros and it drafters are more than happy to splash it to get an above rate finisher that can really apply pressure to the opponent. The card's not exactly getting first picked, but people will play it if they can get their hands on it so long as they are already in a deck that kind of wants to be going in that direction anyway. It's easy enough to splash a mantis rider that it's usually worth the risk. In fact, sometimes people will splash their mantis rider with a land that they picked up earlier in the draft without even knowing that they were going to need it. I think the same paradigm applies to many of the cards that I discussed earlier from New Capenna. Sure, you're not going to first pick a Broker's Charm or an Endless Detour, but if you're already in two of the three colors of either of those cards, it's usually worth splashing the third just to get a really efficient utility spell. You might even already have a mana base that can support it just from picking up lands early in the draft. I think people should seriously reevaluate their positions on some of the gold cards of Streets of New Capenna. A lot of them just seem really good.
0: You know, but a lot of the... Power level and design focus is on three-color cards or you know gold cards that are two-color cards. Most cube designers do have a, a limit to how many they're willing to run in their cube because it does change the texture of the environment to have a high density of gold cards. And so when you have a lot of cards that are from this pool that most cube designers are limiting themselves on to some degree and they're competing with the full history of other gold cards. I do think it's a, a high bar to clear for uh, for a card to make it into people's cubes. So I, I think that's one of the main reasons we're seeing less sort of excitement about the cards in this set overall.
1: Yeah, if you actually, uh, we also just, ask for general comments on whatever people want to talk to us about uh, about the set in the survey and that's definitely a theme that i noticed reading through them is that a lot of people were saying the set's kind of cool the power level looks a little bit weak which i think we see almost every set i think there's a lot of card evaluation that's that's difficult and it takes time for people to sort of understand a lot of the cards or maybe they're right and the other big big theme i noticed is a lot of people said look there's you know 30% of the set is gold cards. That takes up a lot of space where those are just cards that I'm not as interested in for my cube. And I think there could be a lot of reasons. We've talked about how those can just be a little bit more difficult to cast. So players want to optimize, make cards as castable as possible. I think it's also difficult just from a design perspective to think about how they fit into the the scheme of it. If people are looking at their cube and thinking, here are my two color pairs, these three colors look a little bit intimidating or, or difficult to fit in that mental model. Maybe players are also just thinking they want to keep it nice and symmetrical, and if they want this one three-color card, does that like just change the aesthetics, and do I need one in each guild, and are they might like, to be able to find that? Maybe not, because there just aren't that many three-color cards. So I think there are just a lot of little factors. But what I also noticed in that those responses is there's equally as many people that are saying, this is awesome. All these gold cards are great. I say equally as many. There were a couple. Um, <laughs> you saw equally as many, and you I've, only read some them. of they the were comments. As Im- no, I, re- I read every single comment. Did you really? I did. Uh, wow. It was a lot.
0: I skimmed them, people.
1: So I, I think that despite that there might have been a little bit of hesitation about that, I'm excited about how people are going to approach this set six months from now, looking back on it. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw people thinking, hey, yeah, that seemed a little bit intimidating, but I, it sort of pushed me to put a few more heavily multicolored cards and actually change the way I think about my cube a little bit. So I appreciate that this is pushing us to think a little bit more differently.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention that exact same trend in our survey, Anthony, the general pessimism about a three-color heavily gold set. It reminds me of a design tool I've used in my cube's past. I'm not currently doing this because I, I play as many fixing lands as I want, and it's not an issue. But when I did like have these concerns about gold cards, I took a leaf out of Jason Waddell's book. He's a a friend of the show. It's a good book. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. And he would have a certain number of cube slots, let's say two, and then have 10, like three color cards, maybe one for each combination. And for each draft, just sample two of those 10 and put in the cube. And I found that it was a really liberating design tool because I could play as many three color gold cards as I liked, which was a lot. And I didn't have to worry about them clogging up the cube or like riding sideboards or being last picked every time because I would only sample two per draft. And I found that to really resolve a lot of my tensions with specifically three color gold cards.
1: That's definitely a logistical hurdle. That's not something that I'm interested in. But if you're setting up the draft, I will delight in having that little bit of variation.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just cube rarity, right?
1: Yeah, he goes deep, though, on controlling all those little rarities and yeah. making sure that the whole list makes sense despite having that variability.
0: Yeah, in Jason's case, he's playing digitally, so he has the ability to like build the cube list you know, from mm-hmm. a little script he's written that does all this math for him. That's a perfect example of the kind of thing that if everybody had access to that, if that was not a logistical hurdle, I expect that would be an extremely prevalent design tool that cube designers would take advantage of. It's just it does have a lot of those... I don't Challenges know. I, to deal with. I only did it for these two slots, like my my two triple color gold slots, and I, f- I found that was pretty easy. Like I just kept. It the, doesn't sound too bad. I kept the gold cards in with my basic lands, and and when I shuffled up, I just grabbed two at random. Sounds very doable. No logistical hurdle. It's been erased. <laughs> I do want to mention one more potential hypothesis for kind of the relative lack of enthusiasm about this set. I'm not a psychologist and not an expert in, in cognitive biases or anything, but it does remind me of the popular layman's ideas of like anchoring bias or like a bandwagon effect maybe where like, I felt this myself. I I open up the card file, I see a bunch of gold cards and I think, man, there's not going to be a high chance I can use all these. And so I start skimming. And by the time I reach the end of the list, I've only picked a few cards. And I, I contrast this to the most recent, massively popular set among cube curators that responded to us, which was Innistrad Midnight Hunt. In that set, a single card or was tested by ninety-six percent of the respondents. That card was considered. If that's the first card I see on social media or on the the card file, then I'm incentivized to go. This this set this card file must be deep, stuffed with commons and cards that look innocuous, but I want to put in my cube. So I think having like some strong, obviously appealing and well-known quantity like Consider is kind of like a tide that raises all boats in the set. And I don't think Capenna had one of those. And this is um, one speculative reason why we might see less enthusiasm. Really, in hindsight, 96% of people is that's insane. It's, it's really quite nuts. And I, looking back at that, uh, at the Innistrad Midnight Hunt set review, there are 13 cards from that set that are all more popular than the most popular card from Streets of Nucopana. Yes. So to like contextualize exactly how less excited people are about this set, I think that's quite stark. Yeah, I agree with you, Parker. I think that's a, a reasonable thing where people like feel like they have a sense of flavor for the set and are like, all right, well, I'm going to, you know... I've seen enough cards to feel like I am gonna rule out a lot of these cards or just as you said start skimming or making assumptions about what's gonna be playable. So I think that's definitely a factor too. You know what? I I totally forgot another factor, which is constructed buzz. If you have content creators who are publishing articles saying consider is going to bust modern wide open or, you know, whatever hyperbole they use, then that's another huge element in building hype for a set and and getting people to look through the whole card file. Capenna does not have a card like that that's an instant four of in many eternal formats, right? And so I think well, that's probably a... Well, that does get to what I want to... I want to talk about a couple of things before we get to the single card discussion. So okay. first, we do have a couple of hot takes from people that uh, do not refer to cards that are in our top 11 that we're going to be covering. Hey, guys, it's Bones. I want to preface this take by saying I don't like when people say new sets are bad or have no good cards because I generally believe that WotC design is at the top of their game, and probably even pushing cards a bit too far. The set overall looks amazing, and I can't wait to play it and test new cards for cube, but I just gotta express my disappointment in one specific spell. Light 'em Up is bad. If it cost one less mana, or was an instant, or hit face, or had casualty 1, it would be playable. I can only see playing this in-limited with plentiful, expendable two power tokens, kind of like the Decayed tokens were in Midnight Hunt. But as it stands, if Bone Splinters and Bathe in Dragonfire had a baby that was
2: terrible, that baby would be Light Em Up. What is with Corpse Appraiser? You're telling me they decided to print a cantripping 3-mana three 3-3 three three that also has built-in graveyard hate? This card seems insane! What the heck, Morrow?
0: But the other thing I want to talk about is uh, I got to come clean, which is uh, I originally looked at Ledger Shredder and thought it was not for me by a wide margin. And only when the price spiked and I heard about it being played in Modern (laughs) and Legacy did I really give it a second harder look and say, actually... This card is exactly for me, and I expensive love it a whole lot. Expensive
1: cards in, cheap cards out. That's how Cube design works. I mean, it's like an eight dollar <laughs> card. It's
0: not an expensive card. It's just like it, it took that as much. I think about Cube probably more, more than almost anybody. I have a podcast about it. I edit this podcast every week. Writing articles. I'm involved in these discords. And even I was like, uh, a one three flyer that can become a two four. That sounds like board stall city. I'm out. And after seeing how excited people are about this in Eternal Formats, I was like, ah, maybe this is actually right. And after thinking about it more, it's actually one of the only two cards I've actually added to my cube from this set. We talked about the cards I was interested in adding. I've only added two. And one of them is the Lowly Ledger Shredder, which it comes at number 17 in our, on our survey with only 14% of people testing it. It's one in a blue for a Creature Bird Advisor. It's got flying. It's a one-three. And it has whenever a player casts their second spell each turn, Ledger Shredder connives. I'm comparing this card from my own like mental model to directly to Jace Friend's Prodigy, which is a card I have played for a long time and liked well enough. And the thing about Jace is Jace is not really a creature in the combat sense. You'd really never get into combat with Jace. He has no power. He basically can't block anything profitably except for 1-1s. One and by profitably I mean you're just you're just saving yourself one life. It's oftentimes not even worth it to do that because what if they have something to deal 1 damage to your valuable Jace? It's a creature in the sense that it's susceptible to more removal than it would be if it was an enchantment. And then it flips into a Planeswalker, which has all the associations of Planeswalkers for it. Ledger Shredder, by comparison, is very relevant in combat. And I think unlike Jace, is going to be played certainly in control decks. I think control decks are going to be very happy to play this card, which will improve their draw, give them some card selection, and block very effectively. I think it's also going to be quite good in just a like blue-red tempo deck, which would never play Jace Prince Prodigy in my environment, because it's got no power. It's really, really slow. It's like a value engine. You don't want it if you're trying to pressure your opponent. I actually think this is an aggressive threat can get out of hand quite quickly. If this had been a 2-2 instead of a 1-3, I would have seen that immediately. But I think even as a 1-3... You know, the fact that it triggers on both players means that you may just, you know, on turn three, play this on a cantrip, and now you have a 2-4 blocker. Your opponent plays two spells next turn. You untap it can play two more spells. Now you're attacking for four. Like, I think it will grow kind of similarly to a Sprite Dragon-like effect. Anyway, I I feel uh, dumb for sitting down, thinking about the whole set with the explicit purpose of recording an episode about the cards I was excited about, and completely overlooking this one, which I'm actually now quite excited about.
1: Look, the only way that we grow is by becoming wrong, right? So now you're not wrong anymore. <laughs> Fantastic. I, on the other hand, feel a little bit spooked. I actually said that I was interested in this for my own cube. Uh, you know, it's got plus one, plus one counters. It's got double spell matters. It's got all kinds of stuff that I love. But I think you're right. I think it's just a little bit. I think everybody's right. It's a little overpowered for that environment. I was ahead of the
0: curve. I It was in my initial <laughs> <Of course>.
1: survey. <laughs> there you <Yeah. we> go. <laughs> We, we've got the receipts, too.
0: We could pull up the data to prove that. Uh, I don't
1: know. He, is, he has he edit access, He, re- he
0: does have edit <laughs> access. I do have edit access, and I do use it. So, yeah, I, I do think, like, he in added. some ways, the appeal of sets in the preview season among the cube community can be correlated with the general constructed hype and the applicability of constructed heuristics, old, familiar constructed heuristics, with the best cards of the new set.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of crosstalk between all kinds of different magic formats, which is a bias. And in one way, we could say that is a negative that we have all these biases. On the other hand, there's a lot of cards. It's hard to make card evaluations. So being able to leverage our experience from one format and bring it to another is kind of essential.
0: Yeah. And even more relevantly, thinking about our biases may help explain trends in the data that wouldn't be obvious otherwise. So yeah, I absolutely think that knowledge of our biases is not... Um, something to be avoided or like a, a bad thing. I think it's just a necessary part of understanding data. Yeah, and uh, you know, to be clear, it's not that I'm interested in this card because it's good at Constructed. It's that the fact that it's good at Constructed, maybe look at it a second time. Right. Yep. There are plenty of cards that are good at Constructed that I'm just not interested in at all for a variety of reasons. It may maybe look at it again because I originally would have thought this doesn't quite make it in very efficient lists because it doesn't give you enough for the mana, but Turns out it does, actually. So, uh, I don't know. I'm interested in this card. I think it's kind of perfect for my goals in the Bun Magic Cube. And I might just cut JVP for it. Wow.
1: Whoa. Something else I want to mention briefly before we look at the top of the list is the common cycle of lands in the set. So these are only tested by a small percentage, about four or five percent of the, the respondents to the survey. Probably largely popper respondents. I think that's probably the case. Uh, but they have some of the highest ratings just below a couple other cards we're about to talk about at around 2.5. So these are definitely some of the the cards that the people who are testing are most excited about. And I think you're right. That's probably very likely the, the pauper and, and peasant cubers. And I think these lands are just kind of great actually so this this is a cycle of lands they all enter tapped they tap for two colors of mana and they also have four mana including two of those colors tap and sacrifice to draw a card and i think these kinds of like flood mitigation lands actually just play out really well the floor of these is a guild gate so i I think in any kind of lower powered environment these are going to be a great fit
0: yeah anywhere where a guild gate is not embarrassing uh these will be pretty pretty exciting i've really enjoyed their limited play patterns i haven't gotten to I should say retail limited play patterns. I think these lands are kind of emblematic of a trend that we see in sets like New Capenna, where there's less excitement and there's less obvious corollaries to our usual constructed heuristics, which is the cards that people submit to us during previous season are cards they know they want. So we might see relatively small numbers of, or like small percentages of testers, but the ratings are relatively high. And and that means that people submit to us and they've looked through the card file and they know what they want. They know what they're interested in and that's what they're submitting. They're not speculating on a whole bunch of cards because of the perception that this is a really strong set in air quotes.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And so that's why we do like to provide a couple different values for each card and give it to you in a way that on the site you can sort and filter and and dig into that and notice some of these trends like, yeah, there's this group of, of people that are testing rarity restricted cubes that are contributing to some of these trends in the data.
0: We've rambled on a lot, but it's actually okay that we have because five of the top 11 cards are essentially the same card we're going to be talking about. So really, it's like seven kind of unique cards we're going to be covering.
1: I don't know. There's a lot of flavor text in there that we need to get into the details of. But
0: let's dive in. So uh, our number 11 card is the subject of one of our community hot takes, and it is Jewel Thief. My hot take is that Jewel Thief is the most cubable card from Streets of New Capenna. I'm really surprised that it wasn't printed at Uncommon. Years ago, this would have been printed as a rare. I was expecting this to be a 3-2 or cost double green. I'm very excited to test this in my Peasant Cube, though I think on power level, it could easily slot into cubes which include rares and mythics. It will become good friends with cards like Ephemerate and Soul Herder, as well as straightforward green aggro cards like Barkhide Troll and Rancor. Jewel Thief, best cube card in the set. This is two and a green for a creature cat rogue. It is a 3-3 three, three with Vigilance and Trample. And it says, when Jewel Thief enters the battlefield, create a treasure token. I am shocked this is a common. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, three mana for a 3-3 three, three with Vigilance and Trample is already, I think, I mean, have we ever gotten that before at common? Ever? I don't, I don't think, think so. we have. No. And then on top of that, you get one of those mana back immediately. Like, that's kind of cracked. This card's really good. 22.2% of our respondents agree that the card is pretty messed up and have rated it a 2.3 out of 3. Yeah, I think of it as like, I don't know, a Watch Wolf with Suspend 1, kind of. Maybe that's a weird analogy, but like a lot of my cube, at least, is built around these three threes for 2 mana, or... Tarmogoyf, which is sometimes bigger than a 3-3 by a lot. And yeah, it it offers a really good stat line, and it kind of costs two mana. I just don't know how fast it is. Like, it doesn't have haste when it quote-unquote comes off suspend, and so literal Watchwolf can attack two times before Jewel Thief can. And I think that's a lot. But I don't know. It's hard to say. This is a tough card to evaluate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the card is powerful, sort of objectively, especially, you know, when we're talking in the range of limited cards, a uh, three mana three three used to mean something. Now we get a whole <laughs> lot extra on these cards, which I, I have missed mixed feelings on, to be honest, but I think that giving more opportunity, especially a lot of people that are looking at this side are interested in treasure, interested in like artifact synergies that care about treasure or sacrifice synergies that care about mm-hmm. treasure. So having cards that just have a reasonable floor, so you're gonna be happy to include it in a lot of decks, gives us a, a lot more tools to work with.
0: This, to me, feels like it's kind of a a bridge card between lots of different green strategies. It's definitely not embarrassing in any kind of proactive green deck. Though, to Parker's point, it's not the best on-rate card there when you do have access to Watch Wolf-style effects. It's also not a good ramp card, but it does also ramp. So, like, I'm imagining a deck that, again, plays a one-mana ramp on turn one, a war Elf or whatever, plays this on turn two, and then on turn three, you've got the Elf, your three lands, the treasure, you've got five mana, and a three three with Vigilance and Trample in play. Like that's mm. a pretty impressive board
1: development when that actually happens. So yeah, that's a good point. Vigilance and Trample, like if yep. you're ramp- using this to ramp out a planeswalker, this protecting the planeswalker.
0: Yeah. And I if the like manager that, dwarf I'm off it. is <laughs>
1: Don't Planeswalker's
0: Oh, baby. Oh, oh we're baby. We're cooking with gas. Wow. Yeah, I think the card is really strong. It. I don't think it is uh, particularly, like, inspiring. Like, it's hard to think of, like, the cool stuff you could do with it. The cool stuff is going to be attacking and blocking. And trust me, I am all four cards that just attack and block sometimes. And I this did, does both. I did get curious. I felt like I had very few 3-3s three in my queue, but I looked. I only have three. And of those three, two of them kind of don't count because two of them are Merc Tide, Regent and Smuggler's Copter. <laughs> my only real 3-3 three three in my environment is Leovold. Am I, like, missing a whole stat line that I should be uh, including, Parker? Maybe. You play a lot of 2-1s, and one of the best things about 3-3s three is how hard they shut down the 2-1 stat line. So I think it might actually, like, create some feedback loops that you're not interested in in terms of the metagame of, of the stat line. But, yeah, I I, I quite enjoy the gameplay of 3-3 for 2-mana. So, yeah, I think Jewel Thief is uh, is Pretty messed up. Yeah. Do you think people overlook this because it's a common? I think it's more likely that it was overlooked because people didn't look through the card file as deeply as they did for a set like Midnight Hunt. So like, yes, because it's a common and also because people didn't look closely at this full set, I suspect. I didn't do a good job of explicating that this this idea of of the set, as we're trying to rationalize why it might be less appealing or less tested... I don't have any numbers to substantiate this in a ironclad way. And so there's some degree of speculation here, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my working theory.
1: All right. Next up, we have yet another green card Titan of industry. This is number 10 Four green, green, green for an elemental creature. It has reach and trample. When it enters the battlefield, choose two. So you can destroy target artifact or enchantment, gain five life, or have target player gain five life, could be relevant, create a 4-4 green warrior creature token, and put a shield counter on a creature you control. So uh, it is a 7-7. So this is being tested by, again, 22% of of our respondents with a rating of 2.2, so pretty high rating for a reasonable amount of interest.
0: There are only some cubes that want seven mana creatures. If you're primarily doing cheat effects like reanimation and stuff Uh, there's certainly more appealing options on power level and probably on play patterns too but this is in that range where a lot of cubes would consider this kind of like a filler cheat target and also a ramp target where you can kind of play both sides of that of that Mm -hmm. coin if your cube does want seven mana cards like this i think this is one of the more appealing ones to me because it does offer so much modality I will say that life gain is not my favorite mechanic, as we've talked about on this show. So that is a downside for me, that it just gains you five life. It's kind of a bummer.
1: But targeted life gain, you can give your opponent life? Uh,
0: y- yes, you can. You does can that make, make it better for you? you want. But you know, the fact that you can do all these kinds of stuff, it, it's more appealing to me than the Woodfall Primuses and the Tarrasidons. I know those also cost more mana, but the ones that kind of do just the one thing. Uh, you know, they just destroy stuff and or destroy stuff and give tokens. This kind of does a little bit of everything, which it, to me is more appealing on my expensive spells. Yeah, and I also think a 7-mana spell has kind of earned 5 life. It's it's different when the card that's gaining 5 life is Clothis, and it's been in play since turn 2 because it was ramped oh into boy. play. I know. I'm tilted, I, I'm tilted already. <laughs> I like to remind you of the times I've beaten you with Clothis. Um, yeah, every time you played Clothis. <laughs> it, it is certainly a bundle of stats and a lot of modality on a card who's like, Mana value would would make us think, oh, maybe this is just a big, dumb attacking thing. building, and we and yeah, building. But but I think there's a little more play to it than that. And that's that's pretty appealing in this case. I guess another way to say it is uh, your seven mana card should be winning you the game. Yeah. There are lots of seven mana cards that win you the game. This gives you more ways to win the game than just linear ways that are presented by other seven mana cards, which yes. I think is kind of cool.
1: Yeah. On one hand, I do like the modality. Like, we're talking about a lot of cards here where I'm like, I'm excited that this can do different things in different games. It gives you a lot of flexibility and, des- and interesting decision space. On the other hand, one thing I don't love about card designs like this is it feels a little bit just like a menu. There's not a lot of resonance in how these effects are I'll tied together. For me personally, that doesn't really spark joy. But if that's what you're into, that is also fun.
0: Our next card is Goldhound. It is a single red mana for a 1-1 artifact creature, treasure dog. It has first strike, menace, and tap sacrifice goldhound to add one mana of any color. It's being tested by almost a quarter of our respondents with an average rank of 1.9, which is actually quite low for how many people are testing it. And so, the lowest in our top 11. Yes, we can conclude that this is a little more of a speculative test for many of the people who chose to include it. I'm surprised to see this here. I, I, I was sweating. shocked. Yes. Wow. I guess, how do we think this compares to a card like Rabbit Battery, another one-mana red artifact creature with upside that we saw in Kamigawa Neon Dynasty?
1: So I actually went exactly the same way, probably just recency bias about thinking about one-mana spells that have been being printed. It is also an artifact. And I'm so much more excited about Rabbit Battery, personally, just because that actually offers something unique and unique, but also supporting themes that already exist in a lot of cubes that I've seen in my own cube. It's
0: pretty unique. It's a treasure it's, dog.
1: It is a treasure dog, but I don't see how it is unique in a way that supports something that my cube is already trying to do. Like, am I excited First to Strike play and this Menace. On, You on... got
0: all the plus one, plus one counters. You got all the equipment.
1: First Strike and Menace is a nice combination of keywords. Mm-hmm. That is true. Very hard to block once you give it any power buff. It's a sneaky dog. I, I don't know what the play pattern
0: is supposed to be with this card. It, do I play it early and attack for two or three turns when I actually can and then use it to ramp something out later and like turn on delirium like I, I i guess i just don't i don't see where this card fits i think part of the appeal is the fact that goldhound has so much text for a single mana that it can't really help but <laughs> synergize that's coming yeah, back yeah it can't it will synergize with a ham sandwich and so i think partly it, it might be a really good card to pick in draft as a player because you think to yourself well, I can't play this, you know, eight mana thing or whatever near the tail end of the pack, but Goldhound will go in my deck, be easily cast, and will synergize with whatever I'm doing, whether that's, you know, an affinity-style deck or a five-color deck or a Sacrifice Matters deck. It really, like, has a huge spread of things that it will synergize with. Yeah, it's a pretty appealing bridge card. If I had... A red aggressive deck and also an artifact matters deck that was like a theme I was trying to support, then I will probably test it out. And I guess that is kind of representative of the stats we see here. I mean, for reference, it is half as popular by percentage as Rabbit Battery was and rated considerably lower. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's definitely a speculative card. I'm still kind of surprised to see it this high. Maybe that tells us that there are way more people that do have artifact themes that are worth testing this car.
1: Yeah, it might also be relevant that it does fix your mana it taps for or like other treasures you sacrifice this to make mana of any color so if you are saying my primary plan is this is a little creature it's got relevant keywords i'm gonna try and kill my opponent with it but if i'm playing red with a little bit of a splash maybe it also just has some relevancy to to patch up other potential board states or hands that you might draw
0: i think this is the one that should have had haste though that way you wouldn't have to have like it's a treasure but it's a treasure that also has summoning seconds, oh that's which true is you can't actually sacrifice
1: tension. it that's annoying. Not the turn really? it comes into play, no. I don't like that.
0: Next up is the Planeswalker that people are most excited about from this set, Ob Nixilus the Adversary. A lot of text here, so buckle up, folks. This is one black red for a legendary Planeswalker Nixilus. It has Casualty X. Casualty is the Maestro's keyword ability. It says you may sacrifice a creature when you cast this spell. If you do, in this case you're going to copy this spell and it's going to come into play with X loyalty where X is the power of a sacrificed creature. Has three loyalty abilities for plus one. Each opponent loses two life unless they discard a card. If you control a demon or devil, you gain two life. For minus two, you create a one, one red devil creature token with when this creature dies, it deals one damage to any target. And for minus seven, target player draws seven cards and loses seven life starting loyalty of three. This is the card that appears to be the constructed standout from this set. It is showing up in some constructed decks, at least speculatively. And uh, I've heard some early murmurings that uh, this card might be kind of broken. I don't know about broken. I do think it offers something that's like completely novel on a Planeswalker of this competitive cost. It, it just gets one's gears turning. I mean, there have been enough Planeswalkers that we've seen the usual patterns, and this is something new under the sun. And I think that's like, yeah, just, just a lot more potential, both for power, sure, because it's only three mana, but also in terms of like story equity and good gameplay. If this novel thing works out, then it's going to be something that you haven't seen before. And I think that's a pretty powerful or a pretty appealing combination.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate the the long tail of the the kinds of experiences you can have. The fact that you could have these games where you have a huge creature and now you Suddenly I have a huge Planeswalker is pretty cool. Copying things is cool. The The fact that it makes you use your creatures as a resource in a different way. I, I appreciate all those aspects. I also don't love playing against two Planeswalkers at once all of a sudden. like I, I think this is a kind of card that's really going to swing games in a way that isn't the kind of gameplay that I'm looking for. But I, I see both sides of this.
0: I think the card is really powerful from a power level perspective. Yeah, for sure. I think it would for sure hang in the bun magic cube. It's not what I'm interested in because... I, I I don't know, it's a lot of complexity. And I agree that two planeswalkers all of a sudden could be pretty tilting. It does also seem to me that it's gonna be much, much better when you are pressuring your opponent and yeah. still passable, but nowhere near as good if you are the reactive or like slower deck. And that lack of flexibility on a gold card, which is already not that flexible is something I'm always conscious of. So you know, yeah, I don't know. I think that lack of flexibility could be a good thing and like a balancing knob on this design. Because if For you're sure. ahead, pressuring your opponent, they're already kind of under the gun. And then you sacrifice a creature to create two objects, sure. But one of them probably can't do anything if, if this is early in the game, except maybe make a 1-1, one, one, which is like a downgraded game object. And the other one is only doing this like life drain thing. What I'm saying is it... it actually takes away from some of your opponent's board presence in terms of immediate pressure on the life total. And that is acts as like a damping mechanism to keep this from going too crazy too early in the game. Yeah, it's a fair point. Yeah, I don't know. I think the the reason I feel like it's so good if you're proactive is you make two of these and two of these pluses every turn is a really intense clock. And then if you're on the defensive, it's unlikely you're going to be able to attack these Planeswalkers. Maybe you have removal spells for them. Now you're spending cards to get rid of copies of things. It just seems like, uh, you know, it, the uptick can be likened to a, like, Punisher, Sulfuric Vortex, or Bottomless Pit, right? I think Bottomless Pit yeah. is a discard at random, but, you know, uh, one of the champions makes you discard every single turn. The fact that it's a Punisher effect does make it a lot worse, right? Your opponent's going to choose whichever one is less bad for them, which is going to make this effect nowhere near as powerful as those are Vortexes of the world, but you get two of them if you casualty something. And all of a sudden, it's like either discard two every turn or lose four. Like that, I don't know, it seems, seems really hard to come back from.
1: Yeah. I do actually like the design of the last ability. You know, a lot of Planeswalkers have this big ultimate ability that basically just says win the game with some extra steps in between to make it flavorful. But the fact that this deals damage to the same player that's drawing seven cards means there could be a lot of different ways this could pan out. You know, sometimes if your opponent has these, maybe you could just pressure their life total and prevent them from getting that value that could close out the game. Or maybe if you have one, you might actually use this when your opponent is down to seven life to to kill them. Or you might even be milling a, a player when they're down to just a, a tiny library. So
0: yeah, I, agree. I like that Very there is cool. that
1: aspect of your opponent can maybe have some control and build a, a plan to play around this or play against it.
0: I also like that when Obnixilus is... Very strong, the game is over fast. This is not an Uro uh, Titan of Nature's Wrath where the situations that Uro is good in are the long, grindy board stally games. Obnixilus, when it's good, is going to end games faster. So you just shuffle up again and play a second game.
1: Hope they don't draw it. <laughs> yeah. Next up, we have a nice, simple card in Inspiring Overseer. I am not surprised to see this one so high up the list. This is two and a white for an angel cleric. has flying, and when it enters the battlefield, you gain one life and draw a card. And it's tested by thirty, almost 32% of the respondents with a rank of 2.5, so a pretty high rank and good chunk of testers.
0: We saw a fair number of people testing whatever the non-flying version of this was Priest of from a couple forgotten sets back. More. Yes, thank you. Was that all the way back in Call Time? I guess that was like over a year ago at this point it was now, which Adventures is... in the Forgotten Realms. Okay, so it was last summer. That one was tested by a fair number of people, so the fact that it now has flying, it's not surprising to see a lot of people testing this out.
1: Yeah, the other comparison that's easy to make is Cloud Can Seer, which is the same card in terms of Entry's uh, Battlefield draws you a card, it doesn't gain you a life, and it's been shifted into white, which is, I think, a, a color that cares more about having a lot of small creatures in on the battlefield in a lot of contexts, so... I think especially for rarity-restricted cubes, it's obvious that a lot of people are interested in this. Uh, I think it's just a nice, solid, clean design. Kind
0: of cool art, too. Oh, yeah. The weird, like, mm-hmm. halo glow Big behind sweaty angel. the cracked wings. Kind of looks like the old Chrysler hood ornament, so pretty, pretty thematic for the Roaring 20s style of aesthetic as well. I know we talked about this briefly with Priests of the Forgotten Gods, but... I have played pauper cubes before where it's like a third of the creatures feel like they're elvish visionaries, and uh, mm-hmm. seeing all of these creatures that enter the battlefield and draw a card being tested by so many people, I just gotta say that I, I don't love the play patterns of a cube where it's just like, and I keep just making mm-hmm. little dinky guys and drawing cards. That, that's, that's a good recipe for a board stall. We're making yeah, absolutely. less impactful bodies than you could be making at that point part in the game to instead just draw some more cards, and you're just gonna draw more less impactful bodies or draw more cards, and all of a sudden you're just you're staring down a board of a bunch of two ones and one ones and stuff that can't do much yeah it reminds me as like a retail limited analog that maybe more players are familiar with midnight hunts native limited format if you were in a blue black mirror with a million decayed zombies on each side of the board it's like you got the zombies for free and so all your other cards actually did stuff and and eventually nobody could swing because the other player would kill you on the crackback and it's it's a unique experience, certainly, but without... <laughs> Facing
1: a zombie horde
0: is an experience everyone should try once. I really enjoyed it because it was a lot of fun to play for me. But the format does need ways to bust through those stalls. Like in that format, it was Siege Zombie. And also sometimes just big creatures will do it. So I don't know. I guess I'm just advocating for uh, really thinking about if this is a card you want to spend a slot on in your cube rather than just, ah, oh, this is familiar to me because I've played cards like this for a long time. This one's a little better than all the ones I've been playing before, so get in my cube. I yeah,
1: I mean, there's also obviously a tendency to look at this card and say, oh, this card is a quote-unquote strict upgrade from a card I already know. So it's it's a more powerful card, so I will put it in my cube because it is better. But that doesn't really make sense if you haven't heard our whole shtick that we talk about all the time, because your opponent's going to have it half the time. You're not actually making the cube Better by putting in better cards. I will say that sometimes that can make sense. You could really like a card have... that is a little below
0: power, then print a powered-up version. You're like, hooray! This is now more appropriate. But for then my you're answering
1: a specific question or solving a specific problem. I think if you just apply that generically, it doesn't make as much sense. So yeah, I mean, e- even if you have a rarity restricted cube and you're looking for, don't feel obligated to say, oh, this is an upgrade, and so I must switch. If you love your cloud concierge, stick with it. I'll say one nice thing about it, which is that I really like flying on my life threats yeah, yeah. flying is,
0: is a really powerful ability it sounds so dumb to say but it's very easy to lose like little facts like that when you get deep in a cube design mm-hmm. you're thinking about all your synergies and your crossover cards and whatever flying is very good this will allow you to kill planeswalkers you otherwise wouldn't be able to kill it'll allow you to get in that last damage on your opponent that has a bigger board on the ground that you can attack through it's powerful yep our next card is not one, but five, because we heard that you liked card advantage, and so we're giving you a five for one. These are the most highly ranked cards of the Streets of New Capenna, and they are the completion of the Triumph cycle. I will read Jetmere's Garden as an example of how they all work. Jetmere's Garden is a land, mountain, forest, plains. It, of course, taps for red, green, or white. It enters the battlefield tapped, and it has cycling for three. So this completes the Triumph cycle that we first saw in Ikoria. What what was it? Like two years ago now? And yeah, that was the first set after the pandemic began. That's how you can <laughs> it remember. It certainly was. Yeah. That's also like saying it was an eternity ago, I guess. Yes. That was a lifetime ago. Yeah. Or like three
1: months. One of the two.
0: So I guess the other thing I'll say is that these five lands are the allied adjacent shard style fixing lands. And Because they have the subtypes, they are fetchable, and that makes them quite powerful relative to other lands that enter the battlefield tapped. And I think in the two years since Ikoria has come out, we've seen the Triomes see a lot of constructed play, including in Modern. I don't have exact familiarity, but people don't tend to play all of them. They tend to play one off of fetch lands, which will immediately fix your mana. So I think... I think Some decks will see. play a couple more if they're yeah. specifically like a five color deck with Territorial Kavu and Scion of Draco and stuff. And they're right. just trying to get to five basic land types by turn two every game. But uh, but yeah, I think otherwise it's kind of a, a one of or a two of in some decks. We know what this card does. I, I think from a cube design perspective, it's important to note that I think one of the best values these cards provide is that if you are on a fetch dual mana base including a card like Jetmere's Garden is like including another red-white fetchable, another green-white fetchable, and another red-green fetchable, right? Mm -hmm. You're like putting more of these cards to turn more of those fetch lands on for more of your players, which I think is a very real benefit. I do not like these cards, though, I gotta say. And the comparison I can draw it to is like, I would much rather see them finish the Bicycle Land Cycle that they started in Amonkhet, which was four or five years ago or whatever, than finish the Triumph Cycle, which they've obviously done. Part of it is that I think... The modality here is pretty underplayed. Uh, I think that the number of times you get to cycle these cards is significantly less than a card that cycles for one less mana. Three is a, is a steep cost. You'll certainly do it, right? There are times when you're just top decking and yeah. you need to draw action and you'll, you'll be happy to do it. You're happy it has that mode, but I do think it comes up quite a bit less often. And then I also just think they're less elegant. Honestly, one of the things that really bugs me about these is that as a three-color land, they just have a gold land frame. They don't look like they're Naya or grixis or whatever visually, where the bicycle lands, you know, they have the text box that goes from one color to another, which I think makes a big difference in terms of like reading a pack to see if any of the cards are on color for you, looking at your lands in play to figure out what you're able to cast. It may sound like a weird, stupid argument, but it's just all part of what makes these things feel less less clean to me.
1: Readability yeah. is important. Yeah, I think I agree with you on basically everything you said. It, to me, it does feel a little bit silly when you're playing a cube and it's like, yep, it's turn two and I've got all five colors. I know a lot of players love that, so... Uh, here's the positive thing I'll say is I, I agree I would have loved to see the, the Bicycle Lands finish first, but I'm still glad to see them giving c- people cards that they want, right? like oh, A yeah. lot of people love these cards. It's good to cards. see them finish
0: a cycle. They've started so many land cycles right. they haven't finished. I'm glad to see them finish one of them. Mm-hmm. So
1: a lo- I know a lot of people are going to play with these and really enjoy them. So I, I think that's great to see. I was actually a little bit surprised. So if we go back to Ikoria, uh these all received almost the same ra- ranking. A lot of people are just – most people are just playing. All of them are not. Uh, not many people break land cycles, especially while they're just testing things, they were tested by about 20% of the responses from the Icoria survey and got a rank of 2.4. This cycle, I've actually heard, uh, you know, similar arguments to what we're talking about of people falling out of favor with these these lands and playing them less so what i kind of expected to see was the rating would go up but fewer people would test them because you know there'd be this bias that the people that were interested in them knew they were interested in them they like basically played with the same lands already uh so would rate them highly because they already know if they want them or not but we actually saw an increase both in the number of people testing uh at least in the percentage and in the rating by quite quite a substantial amount these are all tested by 35 percent of the respondents with a ranking a rating of 2.7 which is really high so I, I guess a lot of people just actually love these lands. We're really happy to have them.
0: That's probably a constructed feedback loop influencing the higher rank. Like now people have seen them in play for two years. They probably had a chance to play them on arena when we were all locked indoors during the pandemic. And and so I think part of it is also familiarity and not just uh, people interested in the design aspect.
1: Yeah, familiarity is a big thing. I'm also wondering now if maybe I'm also suffering from just a bias of what I'm perceiving as the community impression, where the people that have sort of lost interest in something, those are going to be the people that are going to be more vocal, because they have something negative to say about these lands, whereas people that are just like, yep, these cards are good, we know they're good, we like to play with them, Mm. are are not going to come out of the woodwork as much. I
0: I do think overall the sentiment towards triumphs has gotten more positive since Ikoria overall. There is another big fe- feature here that I think uh, is maybe kind of invisible to the three of us because we don't ever take this into consideration, but I think there's a lot of people that didn't touch the first five because it wasn't a complete cycle. Oh, that's and a great And now point, they're yeah. like, I've got all 10, they're going in. There's a lot of people that just won't run lands they can't run the full cycle of because they feel like it supports certain color pairs or color triptychs more than others. So I think that's actually a pretty substantial factor here too. A lot of that's players don't point. like breaking those cycles up.
1: Yeah. I, for one, love to break land cycles.
0: I actually considered very briefly running just the Esper Triome as the only tribe in my cube because I feel like that's the deck I most often want right. a Triome in. Like either a blue-white or blue-black control deck that is splashing one of the other colors or a full-on Esper control. That's where I want to be able to fetch a tap land and to have the three-mana cycling mode, and that's where I feel like I want it the most. But
1: yeah, so I decided
0: against it because... It looks like a gold land. I don't know. It bugs me.
1: I would consider doing that as well. And I think that an interesting point about that in my cube specifically is I don't have fetch lands, So it would be kind of like just getting a bunch of duels for free that maybe sometimes like getting more duels in the cube out of fewer cards because they wouldn't enable like five color as easily. It might just occasionally be useful for a splash. I think that's an interesting idea. But then I come back to what you said, where I really love the modality on the, the two mana cycling lands that you actually do cycle them pretty often. Yeah. And... and That adds meaningful decision space where I don't think that comes up as much with these. And for
0: reference, I am on the blue-white and the blue-black cycling lands, bicycle lands, in my main cube. And those are the only two I play.
1: Man, I would love a couple more of those. I have
0: gotten really close to putting Sheltered Thicket, the red-green one, in specifically because of Ren and Six. And I might do it. Oh, yeah. I might just do it. Do it. You can't stop me. The number one cube card, according to the 250-ish cube designers that were surveyed, is Tenacious Underdog. This is one and a black for a creature human warrior. It is a 3-2. It's got Blitz for two black black, and you may cast Tenacious Underdog from your graveyard using its Blitz ability. As a reminder, Blitz gives it haste, sacrifices it at the end step, and also draws a card, importantly, when it does leave the battlefield, so or when it dies specifically. Parker, what do you think of Tenacious Underdog? We talked about it a little bit on our Cube Editions episode. I feel like this is not going to jive well with your Watch Wolf stat line, but I'm curious what you think of this. Yeah, I mean, it does trade with a Watchwolf and then come back for more. So I guess in that sense, it it does line up fairly well. And it also doesn't cost more mana than a watch Wolf. So I'm, I'm personally interested in it and plan on testing it. I also think more broadly, like, it makes sense that this is our number one uh, most tested card from Streets of New Capenna because... It plays into well-known, well-beloved archetypes such as black aggressive strategies, which already have a high emphasis on recursive aggro threats. And then also it plays so well with many synergy decks like Aristocrats um, comes to mind first and foremost. The fact that this has no downside and is pretty aggressively tuned in terms of its, its power it, it makes a lot of sense why this is the number one tested card. I didn't even think about it for Aristocrats, which just shows you that I don't have anything resembling Aristocrats in any of my cubes, but it does seem really strong there because uh, I, when I first saw this card, my thought was, wow, four mana to draw an extra card every single turn seems like, I mean, at four mana, you got to pay it every turn, right? But it's like just the ability to, once this thing dies, just have four mana draw card always have always at your at your disposal seems quite powerful to me. It's very relevant you don't draw that card to your end step, though, if you have no way for this thing to die. So unless it gets blocked and dies in combat, or you have a sacrifice outlet like you would have in an Aristocrats deck, you're going to draw a card, but it's not going to be a land for your land drop. It's not going to be something you can play sorcery speed until the next turn. So it is really very slow in that sense. So I think it's really only going to see play, at least in my environment, in decks that are pressuring people's life total and want to use that. Want to use this primarily is just a one mana three two that every once in a while, if you run out of threats and run out of ways to spend your mana, you can get bringing it back from the graveyard. I I do think that the fact that you don't draw that card till end step makes this a lot gener- a lot worse just in terms of generic power level.
1: I think you're right though that it does. We consistently see uh, the the top cards are are very often. Fitting a certain profile, they're they're cheap in terms of mana cost. They are powerful. They are flexible and fit in a lot of contexts. And uh, maybe most importantly, they have like some level of familiarity. It's like I know what this does. I've seen a two mana three two with upside before, and it works. So I think you're right that I I did something similar where it's like I I maybe overlooked this a little bit at first because it had sort of too much text. I'm like, "Ah, who really wants to to try and build around all of this? But that the floor is just extremely powerful, and that is appealing to a lot of cube designers.
0: I think I may have forgotten to say, too, that part of the blitz cost is paying two life, which is relevant. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I did forget to say
1: that. But. Which I like. I, the other thing that really surprised me about this card was the fact that it doesn't exile itself or, you know, have some other way to regulate the fact that uh, you can just do this every turn, except we have that little bit of pressure that it does cost you life. So you're you're putting yourself on a clock if you're trying to just loop this. I do think some part of its appeal that i didn't think about
0: i mentioned aristocrats as a synergy but also human tribal and warrior tribal will love tenacious underdog because it is a repeatable source of triggers and it ensures that any like tribal payoffs you have in play are always online during your turn
1: oh that's an interesting point yeah yeah Yeah, that is true
0: that's actually like what would put me into a human tribal deck is the knowledge that I would always have an enabler in my graveyard if I needed it. Now, of course, you have to draw it first and, and get it to die, but... That's true. You gotta draw every card before talking about card evaluation. Yeah, that, that is a lot of consistency. Except for Lurus. You don't have to draw Lurus. <laughs> <laughs>
1: true. <laughs> oh, boy blur <sighs> it's a card yeah, yeah that, that's a cool point about the tribal tribal themes where additionally that it does blitz does count as casting so if you have things that care mm-hmm. about casting humans and warriors or warriors entering the battlefield or humans or warriors dying like there is a lot of flexibility a lot of depth into the the kinds of play patterns and kinds of card interactions you can have with this card Mardu woe
0: reaper isn't that a pretty commonly played savannah lions adjacent warrior tribal card I'm not sure
1: I would call it warrior tribal. It does tend <laughs> yeah, to be trigger on warrior, in, I mean, in the but right context, it, it could do yeah. stuff. Yeah, you have repeatable graveyard hate. It with is that. in
0: my uh, tribal tribal cube because it gives you warrior procs. So I I, I do think that uh, I hadn't honestly thought about the aristocrats thing, but to me, four mana to draw a card, get an attack for three, and proc all of your aristocrat stuff, the ETB stuff, the leaves the battlefield stuff, the die stuff, seems quite powerful. And yeah. those decks are often winning by just grinding value in the late game. And that's what this does best.
1: Yeah. And I think that's an area that I saw sort of the most enthusiasm and positivity in the survey results was around, you know, casualty and blitz and treasure tokens and all these things that care about sacrificing stuff that for people that are already trying to build cubes that are trying to explore these themes, there's just a ton of stuff here for them. So I would definitely, if you're interested in those themes, dig into these results. And you are banned from putting the underdog in the regular cube because your black sacrifice deck is already quite winning. That doesn't need a boost. Oof, we drafted it last week, and I got bodied by a red-black sacrifice deck. It was it was embarrassing. Can I guess that you were probably playing
0: something without a lot of interaction that was trying to go bigger than your opponent? Uh,
1: I had some interaction.
0: I had a lot of flying. Flying also good. Flying is good, but I feel like I, I've learned from your cube that in that environment, you need a way to stop that value engine. because Yeah. If they get it going, nothing will compete with it unless you can stop it. That's it for Streets of Nucapenna, question mark. We didn't talk about that many cards, but also you didn't like that many cards, listeners. So <laughs> that's what you get.
1: <laughs> uh, Next time, like more cards.
0: Yeah. So um, did anybody have any closing thoughts or cards that didn't get mentioned they really want to call out? I do want to encourage our listeners that Streets of capena in terms of the cube community's exploration of its potential, it has a lot of untapped potential. So a lot of rocks that haven't been turned over. Exactly. Yeah. We have not explored this very fully as a community. So it is absolutely worth looking through the whole card file. If there's a card that interests you, or if there's an obscure archetype you want to support, this card file is deep and it is wordy and it will reward exploration. I think. I do want to call it one last card that uh, I think is just... It's the kind of card I don't love, but I know cube designers often like because it serves as a bridge between a bunch of different archetypes, and that's just Galagreeders. This is the two-mana 1-1 one one that has alliance. You can either put a plus a plus one counter on it, create a tap, treasure token, or gain two life. It also says you can't do the same ability multiple times per turn. So the most you can do is all those things a turn if you have three creatures into the battlefield. Then it stops triggering anymore you know this is a card that if you care about one counters, if you care about life gain if you care about artifact matters it just kind of does everything on a very reasonable floor for a two mana card so that to me uh, i think is an interesting card for cube design reasons and that it slots into a lot of different archetypes and themes so 15th most popular card at a 15.8 percent testers
1: yeah, I actually like that the the alliance mechanic, that whenever you a creature under the spell, you get a thing, they mix it up on a lot of these cards where it just has different effects depending on if it's, uh, you know, either you get to choose multiple effects or it just does something in sequence. So the second trigger does something different. I think that's a really nice way to sort of mitigate the potential for really repetitive play patterns and just like, yep, I have my Cathars Crusade and I'm just doing this for the rest of the game and playing deck. You do have to sort of like sequence and potentially build around setting up these multiple different kinds of effects. And like Parker said, I feel like there is a lot of depth, especially in those gold cards that we haven't really explored much. So I think uh, we're gonna go into that in a, in a lot more depth in a future episode and really figure out what we can find in there. Don't
0: be like me with Ledger Shredder, which I'm still embarrassed about. Actually, look at all the cards, people. <laughs> 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 I am not really excited
1: for that card. Or don't, if that's not fun for you. Go outside, enjoy the weather. I'm
0: gonna unearth Ledger Shredder and then play a Cantrip and go Oof, to town. Rude. Pew, oh, dang. Pew, 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 pew thank you for tuning in and thank you to everybody that filled out our survey we always appreciate it if you want to make sure you don't miss the next survey you can sign up for our newsletter on our homepage. i promise i will not send you a bunch of pointless newsletters because i have to pay money to send that out so uh, i don't do it unless i have a really good reason and it's basically always for the set survey. so that's the best way to make sure you never miss it you can also follow us on all the various social media platforms and discords and stuff All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show was produced by Parker running a bunch of math and crunching numbers, and then Anthony pushing those numbers to a staging server because my development environment is kind of messed up right now and I can't deploy the website. And then talking about it over Zoom. Thank you, Parker, for lending us part of your Friday evening. It is absolutely my pleasure. I hope y'all have a good time on the streets of New Capinna. (laughs) (laughs) How'd you like that for a cheesy? Bada bing,
1: baby!